welcome to Full Stack Business Owner, where we are enhancing your full stack of skills to build wealth inside and point out outside your business. There you go. We, I reckon we could almost do like a wiggles dance. Like, you know, like hot potato, hot potato, like those things, but with like pointing inside and outside. I've actually been thinking about this. I would love it if our audience would send some voice clips of them <sighs> saying inside and outside, and we might actually edit in some other people saying it as well, because they're definitely <laughs> sick of you and I saying it. Hey, 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 ain't no one sick of me saying it. I feel like I got this voice all down pat. Now, if you're listening to this and you're like, damn, these guys talk smack, well, go and subscribe to our newsletter and Receive more smack talk. Go to fullstackbusinessowner.com forward slash newsletter. Uh, if you're not on there, obviously you're not receiving information around how to build wealth inside and outside your business. So again, that's fullstackbusinessowner.com forward slash newsletter. Again, receive more smack in your email. It's great. And I just I just think everyone should be on it. Now, before we get started, let's cue Charlie the Vulture Valor. And I will still, I'll keep saying the Vulture until it sticks. So Charlie I'm, the Vulture. I'm ready to get a tattoo. Like, I'm actually ready to get this out. I like it. Let's get this one to steer. Brilliant. All right. Cue the disclaimer. Charlie here from Full Stack Business Owner. I need to let you know that Grant, myself, and the Full Stack Business Owner team are in no way, shape, or form qualified to give you financial advice or pick investment products. We highly encourage you seek out and engage the use of professionals when making financial decisions or comparing investment products. Charlie, you know the one thing that keeps me awake at night? No, don't share me. Profit killers. What are the things killing my profit? However, the things that I'm like, I don't, I'm not aware of. Do you want, do you want to lead us into this concept of profit killers and killing profits? I've been thinking about this topic a lot lately and more recently because I feel it's um, not really discussed a lot, number one. And then number two, I'm going to actually say the things that we've got on this list here of profit killers, because they don't necessarily show up easily on a P&L, people miss them very easily and I think they're probably more impactful than the P&L stuff. So I'll like give you an hidden, example. Hidden profit killers. Yeah, not accounted for in many. Uh, like some of these are intangibles, some of these are unusual. And again, I'll give an example here just to set the context. Let's say uh, you used to use a software. We'll make it uh, Netflix. Like you needed Netflix for your office for some reason. And then uh, that changed. When you looked at your P&L and you saw, hey, I've still got this Netflix expense, but I don't use it anymore. Like it's really easy to like obvious to cut that expense. And I think for a lot of people, they're like the ones you go through when you're cost cutting or looking at your profit killers that it's like, oh, no shit. So that's the easy ones. Where if you think about some of the things that are on the list here is like, they won't show up in that same way and can like end up like clogging up a business in a very, very unusual way and really destroying profits. I like this one because I think a lot of people, when they would have seen this profit killers point, they're just like, eh, it's going to be the same. No, 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 no. This is a fundamentally different. These are the things that I wish people were telling me about <laughs> when I first started where the more that we were riffing on these concepts, Charlie, the bigger the list got. <laughs> are we going to fill this? Are we going to fit all this into an episode? So the first one, I'm going to let you kick off on this. Holding onto legacy clients and suppliers. What do, what do, what do we mean by that? <laughs> all right, I'll tell you a story to kick this one off. Um, when, when I started my first agency, 
I actually used to do like Facebook ads and just Facebook ads. And what I used to charge is $500 per account. So I had uh, 10 clients paying me $500 each. and I was making $5,000 a month. And just as a side note, thought I was killing it. You were killing it. Yeah, it was the most money I'd ever made. It was great, to be honest. I enjoyed it a lot. But uh, what happened is as that business grew, right, so we went from just me, which is like I'm the receptionist, the manager, the onboarding chief of staff, the ad guy, the graphic designer, the copywriter. I'm all of it. I'm doing everything in this business. It's just me. When we grew to a team of 15, right, my overhead and cost of delivery changed massively. Um, So what actually happened is that if I was delivering uh, Facebook ad services for $500, it's actually costing me money. Yep. Now that seems obvious, but here's where the challenge lies. So for any new client that came into the business, I was charging, let's say, between three dollars and $5,000 a month. But all that was really happening is the profits on the new clients I was getting was covering the losses on the clients that I had taken on and was just too loyal to let go of. Yep. So the challenge for me is like, one, I just wasn't aware. Like I really didn't factor in the cost increase in the same way. I just kind of thought in the same way, well, if one of my ad managers is looking after an account, like it's still good turnover and all the rest, but it just compressed the margin heavily. Like margin compression became a huge problem because of holding onto one of these legacy clients. Now, it was actually like, I was very loyal to the people that gave me my start, right? I'm a pretty, like, it's one of my, I would say, maybe it's a good trait, but it's definitely one of my stronger traits is like, I'm a very, very loyal person. So I wanted to honor the deal that I'd put in place, even though I was running it at a severe loss. And I'll never forget this day, Grant. I was on a call and one of those original legacy clients was going through some business challenges of their own and they were just unleashing on me, right? <laughs> unleashing, uh, like all like pass along pressure, it's known as in marketing. Yep. So let's say a client's had a challenge in their business. Well, they just want to blame marketing. Well, if the marketing was better, all my problems would be gone. If we just had more leads, all my problems would be gone. Um, and I remember getting off the call with this client and, and then having the realization, I'm paying them. I'm running this at a loss for this experience. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. This Completely. So um, I think a lot of business owners out there, I see this quite commonly today in many, is that they will be honoring old deals and old things. And I'll give you mm. an example of one today, right? If you've just gone through this massively inflationary period in the world, which we have, and you haven't increased your prices because you're trying to remain loyal to all your clients, but your costs have gone up, you're already starting to experience some of the same. Or if you've got deals from years ago or all those types of things, it just leads into this like, legacy um, client or legacy product. Like there's a whole like legacy part of businesses that just, well, keeps their profits down. You you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a guy who owns investment properties, majority around Adelaide, just because that's when he first migrated to Australia, that's where he landed. And so that's just where he bought investment properties. Like that was, that was his strategy. And so, and and he bought them like 30 years ago, right? So he's been in this game for, for a very long period of time. And I was talking to him probably about two months ago around sort of my property investment portfolio. And the fascinating thing when I was talking to him about rents was that he has tried to keep the same tenants in all of the houses for a very long period of time to the point his rents are 30% below market just because he wants to try and hold on to them. And I'm like, why? And he's like, 
because they seem to be good people and like they don't really annoy me. And I'm like, that's what you got a property manager for. And he's like, but I want to do them right by doing me right. And I'm like, yeah, but you've got so many properties that you're just not making the money that you could be making on top of. And he's like, oh, no, you know what? It's fine. It'll all figure itself out at some point. And I'm like, why are you holding on to these legacy tenants? <laughs> I feel like I'm making that emoji face right now with the grinding teeth. What's it called? The grimace. grimace. The grimace. Like, well, we should set context here, right? All these like profit killers, they don't just apply to your business in my example. Mm-hmm. Like, these all apply to in- investing as well, right? So when we think of like legacy clients, it's like, you know, legacy tenants. Totally. And so I, I the business owner inside me just like flipped and like freaked out. I'm like, dude, you're playing this game completely wrong. Um, but the other one that I had was on the supplier side. So back in the day when I had a digital marketing agency and I'm like, oh, I want better profit, I decided to go and build an e-commerce store that does drop shipping. Remember those days when drop shipping was a big thing, Charlie? Yes, that was me. Uh, so what we did was we actually went out and looked for best suppliers that we could potentially drop ship from and just kept, kept ordering from them. So we kept going, logging into their website and just order. So we'd get an order, then we'd go onto their website buy the product and ship it to our clients for cheaper and would make the spread, right? And we just, just did Just I loved those days. Oh, fun really days. Great, great days. And so that's, that's what we did until at some point I'm like, we could be getting better profits if we just shopped the market. But I resisted changing it because I really liked the people we were doing business with. They were great people. They were increasing their prices because obviously they wanted increasing profit, their profit, decreasing our profit, I'm like, no, this is just convenient. It's easy. I don't have to worry about it. The team interacted with their team very well, not to worry. And then funnily enough, Hazel, this is like seven years ago, comes in and looks at this like, this is horrible. What? <laughs> like the margin compression was insane. And so Hazel was actually the one that came in, built a spreadsheet of all of the companies that supplied the same products that we did and literally built a process for the team to go shopping for the best spread. <laughs> Because I was looking for a convenience factor because it, it was an e-com dropshipping. Like I had three of them and I'm like, so less work is best as opposed to profit optimization on this thing. I'm like, I want a small team. I just want to do these things. Like I just don't want to deal with headaches. These guys did really well with refunds until Hazel comes in. It's like, dude, we're just missing profits. I'm like, yeah, but it's going to be more work. And she's like, oh, it will make up for the problems. <laughs> like, it's fine. And so this was just me holding on to a legacy supply because – I personally liked it. They were just nice people that I wanted to work with as opposed to me playing the game of business of trying to make it profitable. Yeah, so I mean, you could apply this again to like property managers in investing ex- or brokerage exactly. firms with uh, shares like or, or super funds or whatever it is, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm not making recommendations, not financial advice, but it, it exists everywhere. But I, I'd love to ask you this question here because I think it's interesting. Where does this come from? And I'll give you three to pick from. It seems that it's like convenience. It's like having to change something is huge. Right. Number two is like fear of like if you got rid of a client, you wouldn't get a new one. Like is it a, a deep money fear? Might be another one here. Um, maybe there's some others, but what, what's your view on that? Yeah, so getting the clients, I, I think that comes back to some people's fear on their ability to replace them, but also their self-worth. Like I know when I used to price SEO services quite cheap, that's because that's kind of what I felt like I should charge. Exactly right? what I did. Yeah, and so I'm like, I don't think, because I, I knew the operations in the business, I'm like, cool, everything kind of comes to me and the team kind of executes and there's a bit of a profit margin and 
I'm okay-ish with that, but I feel like I might not be. I look at all these massive marketing firms. I'm like, well, I'm definitely not that, so I can't charge that price, even though my service is probably 10 times better than what they provided. Um, and so that was like one of the big things for me. But then from the supply front, I always just look at the cafes and stuff that I go to. And the only reason that I do that and I go to the same cafes repetitively is because I know that I'll get disappointed or I think I'll get disappointed if I go somewhere else. <laughs> and when we like people, right, as well, yeah. right, if you like the cafe owner, even if it's more expensive, maybe it's not the perfect coffee either, but it's like you go somewhere else and it's crappy. It's like, oh. I do, there was a cafe um, when we lived here a couple of, in South Bank a couple of years ago. Um, we used to go to this cafe repetitively and it's around the corner from our place. And so when we moved back here, we went there and I was so excited to meet this guy, see what he was doing after like two years. He wasn't there. He sold the business and I've never been back since. Coffee's the same. Everything's the same. I'm like, no, nah, dude, I don't want this stuff. No, <laughs> this is it. So, yes, relationships. All right, I've got to hold us in line here. We've got a big list to get through. Next point. All right, we're going to talk about the next one here. I'll bridge this one. Ad hoc services and products. So this is an interesting one because it's a trap that I've seen so many businesses fall into. Right, so you're wait, wait, wait. And, and you've never done it? <laughs> hey, hey, hey. I'm preaching on my soapbox here. Like this is all about everyone else, not me, Charlie. This is there is no mirror. I can't work thing. out if we're trying to educate people or this is therapy. It's just us venting on the dumb shit we've done. I'm or- laying down on a pillow, like <laughs> this is it. I'm like tears streaming down the face. Uh, so as ad hoc services, one of those challenges, right? So if you think about it logically from a business perspective, and that's where I'll focus on for now. So when we go and build a new ad hoc service. It typically, from a revenue perspective, just hits the p in in the revenue line, right? And so when that happens, guess what? The expenses are just the team that I'm using, which means it just morphs into revenue minus expenses. Like I don't see the profit margin on that because it's very rarely extracted out. The business model that I've built in my business is to support typically other things. So to use an example here, um, doing podcasting, editing, and someone comes in and says, hey, can you please build a website? And we're like, we have resources that can do it, sure. But we probably don't have profitability metrics, uh, management structure, process templates, all these things to execute it because we don't do it, <laughs> right? But you know what a lot of business owners will say? Charlie, I'll take your money. Don't worry, we'll figure this out and I will get this done for you because I like you. I don't want you to go anywhere else because maybe you'll leave me and I need you to stay here, so I'll do it. So what do they do? They go, cool, I'll take this website, have no process, no system, so they start burning the midnight oil to execute and deliver it. Then what happens next? That person says, hey, can you do this other thing? Or someone else is like, hey, you did that for them. Can you do it for me? And it actually creates this ad hoc service, creates a confusion around what your business does, but it actually bleeds your profit margin. Right, because you're trying to execute and work through things that the team's not trained for, the team's not built for, there's no system, there's no management, there's no accountability layers. And as a matter of fact, your clients will typically have a worse experience because they're like, you do this so bad. <laughs> like it's obviously not repetitive at this. And so the ad hoc services is, uh, in my opinion, like this silent profit killer because it sits hidden in a PL, it also sits hidden in an execution, right? Like the, I'm not catching up with a team talking about podcast editing when they're trying to build a website like I have to deliberately go and try and talk to them about this 
which means now it's just this little orphan that I'm just like, well, what are we doing here? But I'm executing it not because I know it fits into a profit margin, just because it's there. I, the funniest one I know is I know a graphic designer, right, who um, he thought it would be a good idea to offer his clients um, website maintenance. So like updating plugins and pages and making sure that the website went well. And his whole idea was that he was going to do a graphics pack every month for people and then put it on their website for them. So not a bad idea. Yep. Um, he puts it out to the market and two people took it up. Right, so which like obviously is not enough people to sustain the service. So he's got a, <laughs> a full-time developer or probably part-time now, but he's got a developer and he's delivering this service for two people. Right, And you would think like over time, like if he would get more clients, it would be okay. No one else ever took it up. So now he's managing this developer for two clients, oh. which makes no money in a Gosh. service he doesn't really understand. And I'm like, well, why don't you drop it? Like, why don't you get rid of it? Like, it's not making you any money. But again, there's this fear that the client will leave if he yes. stops doing it. So yep. his uh, profit is destroyed and probably like he's losing money on it for sure. <laughs> and he's not a developer. He doesn't know how to do it. He's got to manage this team now. He's got to manage a developer where it's like, I just look at all these things and go, what if he just got that time back to focus on his core service? Anyway, we, we won't stick too long on this one because I am concerned we won't get through this entire list. <laughs> we do you want to lay out the next problems. one? Yeah, let's let's do the next one. So interestingly enough, Charlie, the next concept is like changing direction too quickly. Like, what do we mean by that? I'm actually going to use a fitness analogy for this one. Love the fit pros. Yeah, I, I just think contextually it's easy to understand and then I'll talk about where symptomatically I've done this and uh, I see the mistakes in it in uh, hindsight, right? So when someone is training for a marathon, it's very, very different than training for bodybuilding. It's very, very different. So um, very different lifestyle and obviously very, very different outcomes. Now, if you did that week to week and swap between the two, like you can see you would make no progress or get good at either. Okay. It could be very, very difficult to get good at either of these. So if you've got an organization that's like one week we're training as marathon runners and then next week we're training as bodybuilders, right, we never actually get to the outcome of being good at either of them. Because yep. right, the habits never form, the joints never get to a place. So it becomes really, really dangerous. And uh, the thing that I commonly see, and I definitely did this, was in the beginning when we're trying to work out our business or when we're a startup, we are trying to move and be agile and do different things till when we find something works. Mm. If you start doing that when you've got 40 people or when you're a more established organization, all you do is just destroy productivity like yep. because no one on your team forms good habits. Yeah. Like one week they're doing this, the next week they're doing that. So you end up like really like slow and clunky. So it's like a, it's like a productivity loss, like a huge productivity loss. I, I find this was an interesting one because <laughs> there was a guy that I know that had an outbound sales call center, um, and he used to always hate on his co-founder because he used to have he used to be the big idea guy and come in and like to. He was essentially the guy. Wait, wait, wait. Let, let me guess. He went to a mastermind event or watched some training and then he'd come back like a hurricane like, guys, we're doing this. So the, my mate called wait, it. Wait, am I close? Yeah, he called him a seagull because the way he described it was this guy would go out, have these massive ideas and he'd come because they had a physical office. So he'd come bursting into this office, fucking flap his wings everywhere, shit all over everyone's desks, like make this huge mess of this team of people and then fly out the room. 
And all these people would just sit there going, what the fuck? <laughs> like, what do we do now? Like, are we going that direction? Are we going this direction? What do I do? What does my day look like? Can you How just imagine that? This? So you're the staff. You're sitting in that room. You've got your week planned up out to be effective for the business. You know what you're doing. The seagull comes in, <laughs> completely ruptures that, and then you have to reorganize your week. I can't see that uh, killing profits at all, Grant. So he, yeah, his job was to basically go like refix the office and say, no, nothing's going to change. I'm going to try and fix this and figure out how to actually implement some of his good ideas because most of the time they're decent ideas. They're just not well thought through. Do you know what's interesting? It's never the quality of the idea that's the issue. Mm. I, it's I do the have a que- execution. I do have a question for you, right? So to use like a, a wealth uh, concept on this, so if you were to look at your property investment portfolio now, and you were to say, great, let's go and change really quickly. Like, do you think that that, like, are you sitting there going, I'm willing to go and execute on something like that? Or do you see it as needing to be a bit more methodical based on the risk that you've got on the other side? Because it's not just the pain that other people go through. It's also the risk factor in changing direction so quickly. I would, I would go even further on the, on the wealth side of things. I think this is even more important to have a long-term plan and strategy because I'll give you the example. Like I've built my portfolio in a property. If I flip-flop between property and shares, can you think of the change cost? But it's like, still just look different. At the selling agents, <laughs> yep. stamp duty, all the things I've put money on to execute this strategy long-term. If I'm like, oh, now I'm day trading – like I've just un- – just the change cost would be immense. Yeah. Now, then you look at the idea of like I don't know anyone that's like great at anything in general but particularly investing. Like do you know anyone that's gotten good at property in a week or a month? No. None. No all right, well, all right. What about with share trading? Do you know anyone you would call – right. So, if no. you, again, if you're changing between these camps and you can go within it, it's like I know a very, very talented uh, trader. Right? I know a very talented trader. He's done it for like 20 years. If he went and did like, I don't know, moved into options trading or futures, even he would struggle with that. And and like for myself, I'm good at uh, more residential stuff. If you threw me into commercial, even though I'm in property, I would probably struggle with many of the concepts and things just because of the learning curve you continually have to go through. And I think that's the biggest struggle that people don't understand is, and I always call it being blindsided, right? So you look at this thing from the outside and you're like, oh, commercial property, to use your example, it looks like it's residential and no worries at all. I could just go and buy a commercial property and I'm happy. It's days. a building and it has it's tenants. A, it's a building and tenants. Uh, and then so they make the pivot only after a week realize they're like, oh, wait, the lending's different, the maintenance is different, the tenants are different. <laughs> like all these fundamentals that I did not realize when I was looking through the glass <laughs> that now I have to feel that pain is the key point to this around. Can, can I bring something into this conversation though? Of course I'm not against people changing direction. That was exactly bringing, where I was going. Yeah. 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 Like it's, if it, let's say you are in residential property and you want to go into commercial, right? Which is cool, right? People do that for a variety of reasons. I'm not going to address motives, but it's like, do it strategically and well. Exactly. Like inform the team, bring it in to a strategy, make a plan, maybe speak to some people that have done it and know where the pitfalls are and then execute it well with everyone on board. Completely. Try and find the person that's done it before and go like, what did you hit up against that you didn't expect when you first started it? And sometimes when you're doing things like in business, like you and I, like we 
dip our toe in the water before we change direction. Like we will always try something and go, no, 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 that's not what we thought it would be. Or, yep, we always have this – I know I always talk to you about like what is the risk that we have here? Like how can we wheel this back? Because I don't want to pivot everybody on a massive risk that we're going to struggle with. One of the things I really like that we do is ring fence. So okay. like let's let's just use an example here because I think this will be important. I think every business owner that listens to this has always got ideas and things they want to do. So if you're going to do it and bring new things into your organization, the, the approach we've taken more recently, which I love, is like – and I'll use TikTok ads as the example. We've started running TikTok ads for the podcast. Hopefully some of you have seen it. Woo. But it's like we actually hired and built out a team specific for that. We didn't just dump it on existing people that are busy – trial it in a small way and then based on the results we'll scale it up and roll it into the organization so like ring ring fencing new ideas and building teams for new ideas i think is awesome i love that way of doing it but guess what we factored that into our profit margin we factored the innovation side into profit margin we understood what we were going and stepping into and we said well if this is not profitable we're still going to run it for six months see where it lands and hey if it does great think of the upside and so like because we've been so good at avoiding these profit killers grant (laughs) We're not getting our profit kill. We can do these things. <laughs> I'm going to set you up on the next one because I know you've got some interesting stories. So team drama and toxicity. This is this is a, a great one. All right, I got one for you here. I um, I know someone who runs a family business, right? So it's a heap of brothers. And I won't, I won't name these people at all because this is like you wouldn't want this aired. But I, I know them well. I know them on a personal level and I know them on a professional level. Now, these brothers all run a business and the thing that I find so interesting is how much of their week is spent fighting with each other versus doing anything productive. Mm-hmm. So, like, they run this business and, like, if, if I um, if I speak to one of them, which I'm just going to call them Bob and Dave, if I speak to Bob, he's like, you won't believe what Dave's doing. <laughs> got these, he's like, he's actively spending his energy talking about how what one of the other brothers is doing poorly and oh, if I was doing it, I'd do it this way. And I, I look at it and go, what, what's outrageous is they've been quite successful as well, I will mention at times, but I just look at it and go, if you guys could get aligned and work with each other, wow, what this business could do. Completely. But yeah, let's say, um, I would say, oh, I suspect, right, 25% of their time must be spent just bickering and bitching and fighting each other and in a completely non-productive, almost uh, abusive way because they're family, so they actually go after each other personally as well. But the point being is just like that is such a killer. And this doesn't apply just to like the brothers, but it's like what if you've got a team that's like that? Exactly so if you've got it. two team members that are constantly uh, bickering and moaning, like drama is expensive in any organisation. I think yeah. I think this is one of the biggest hidden ones. I really, really do. Because if you and I've unfortunately I've seen it before in a team that I built in Melbourne uh, for one of the businesses where like there were two people that wanted the leadership role, and to the extent that yeah, it's it's always like when you play the game, it's like you can either prove that you're significantly better than the other person by being better or by making other people realize that they're not as good as they thought they were, and so they spend all their time. Re- trying to get everybody else to realise that they're not as good as they thought they were and they were doing that to each other. And I'm just like, this is so bad because instead of just two killers just going for it, like just going, great, let's go and rise this entire organisation up ourselves, it was actually they were bringing everything else down. 
And so it was almost trying to be like, oh, how can I just make that person not seem good? How do I just make that person seem less than I am? And you just like, that is so counterintuitively beneficial to a business because it's like, no, it makes sense in your personal little world that yes, I, I might not be as good as the other person, so I'm going to try and bring them down. It's like what you see in politics, right, where they go and run ads to say, Charlie Bell is not this thing. Like that's kind of what you're doing here. But in actual fact, you're just being a dick and now you're impacting the organization because that's where you're spending all of your time. Right? And I just, What's I, really I, interesting is people seem to convince themselves that this drama they're getting involved in is like for the good of the organization. It's like, oh, they go, if I win this fight, then things will be better. And it's like, no, you're just going to bitch and moan about something next week and this continues. The worst thing is that that little one-on-one bickering, fine, whatever, I can figure, deal with that. But when they try and bring a team of 25 people on one of the sides, the coffee catch-ups, the like chats online, the it just riddles throughout the entire organization. And it's just like the way I always describe it is like this little cancer right? You've got cancer in your body. Like, do you cut the, do you cut the cancer out of your finger and just cut your finger off? Or do you let it and you try and figure it out and just let it go to the rest of your body? And I'm like, no, 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 no. Drama just needs to be cut out. It needs to be stopped because this thing's just going to go rancid through absolutely everybody. Oh, share one on the more investing side. Crazy tenants. We've done a whole episode on this one about my uh, experience with a tenant in Western Australia, but um, I, I've got I've got some properties where it's like we never hear from them. They're great, they're happy. Like it's more like we have to check in. It's like just just like Send things you guys good here. Alive. Like, do you need anything done? Like, is there any maintenance? Like, how can we help? Yep. And then like I mean that's a good problem to have, right? And like I very much think of our tenants as clients. Like I want to look after them. That's the idea. Conversely, uh, this one tenant I've had in WA is like they ring the like they ring the property manager three to four times a week, and then we have to hear from the property manager. So all this drama is like taking up time, which then kills profits. And then I will say, all this drama has eventually led to this tenant breaking the lease, and we had to change it over. Which I'm actually kind of happy about. I don't want drama. Yeah. I think drama kills profits completely. You know, else, you know what else kills profits, Colin? Lay down. Re-recruiting. <laughs> <laughs> so the concept of needing to go out and re-recruit people because you didn't maintain them. What was the um, – I can't remember what the study was, and it's massive in software as a service or SaaS businesses, is between the cost to acquire a new customer. And, like, they have metrics around this. So they call it a CAC, cost uh, – yeah, cost acquisition for it. Cost Are those software people, they nail their acronyms. I do that. I got heaps of them. Um, but then they've also got like the how much they invest to retain them and they basically compare them against each other. And it's like so for every buck that we spend in retaining people, it's the same equivalent to the $10 that we spend acquiring someone new, for example, right? But not enough organizations focus in on making sure that they do the same for their employees. <laughs> Like this, like, cool, you can go and focus on those metrics to go and bring in customers. But your employees, no, just go just go out and just recruit new ones and we'll just bring them in only to get them into an organization that doesn't support them, doesn't love them, and then they leave. And then guess what, Charlie? It costs a fortune to go and hire somebody. It takes a boatload of time. And then when they come in, you got to train them for, depending on the role, anywhere from a month to three months. And then as they get comfortable in what they're doing, the actual profitability for that individual, depending on what they're doing, 
might actually take you six months, 12 months to make money on the expense that you've just put out just because you didn't want to maintain the relationship and make sure they wanted to stay. And I, just See, I think that. about this differently. You're, you're suggesting that it's like organisations aren't looking after their employees and they leave. Totally. All right, I want to back this one up a step. What I've observed and done, right, I'm actually going to talk about this, is when I had the agency, one of the things I uh, didn't do well was I would wait too late to recruit. So let's say mm-hmm. and as Charlie running his agency, I'd wait till capacity got to like 100%. Then I would go find someone. Right. Interesting. Right, so let's just play this one out. Let's play it out. So because I'm hiring and I'm already 100%, the symptom is I then rush the hiring process. So rather than building up enough candidates or giving uh, effort into the job role or creating a good test task, like all the things that would go into getting a quality candidate, I then rush and get a substandard person. So then the person comes into the organisation we start them, onboard them poorly because I'm too busy with my 100% capacity as it is. So I'm just trying to like throw – Yeah, throw – They stay for a month or two. They go, what the fuck is this? I want out. So they've been onboarded poorly. They don't know how to succeed. Definitely on me. They're also not the best candidate or who I would want. I'm like – so as an ad person, I'm like, cool, do you know what an ad is? Yeah, sweet, let's go. (laughs) Come on, you got the job. Yeah, so not hiring based on experience. I'm like, have you used the internet? We're good then, right? It's so terrible hiring standards. So then the quality – so can you see that it's like I almost think that this is a double-edged sword. He's like, yes, there's a um, way you're thinking about it of like, of course, if you look after your team poorly, don't have a good culture, don't pay on time, don't offer progression, all those things can definitely lead to a re-recruitment. But I would make the argument I think the bigger – cost to many organizations and mine is this like leaving hiring too late as that stage one and then getting someone poor and it's like just think of the time loss and opportunity cost and even expense in that type of process well think about this what if you do what i did you hire a b player and then you keep them what's the cost of having a b player in that role versus the a player you could have had i feel like that's like comes back to like holding on to legacy people like (laughs) It's like just because it's so much easier. Oh, they kind of know what they're doing. It's fine. I'll, I'll accept a five out of ten. But I, I, I love your point because it's almost like the because the symptom is just not adequate planning or not adequate visibility. And it's probably one of those things that I take for granted because I know you and I sit down and talk about this probably twice a week where we're like, do we have capacity? Can we bring on clients? Yes, we've got capacity. No worries at all. We can sell. We can do whatever we want and not feel the pain. And I'm just – so sometimes I sit here and I'm just like, surely everyone does that, Charlie. It's fine. But no, you're right because I've done the exact same thing in my businesses. I, uh, yeah, I remember hitting up all my friends just saying, "Hey, do you have anyone that I can go and recruit from?" Like anyone. Wow, what a great strategy that is! And this is where people start hiring family and friends as well because of the, in my opinion, they're like, oh, they don't know how to. Like it's, it's very symptomatic. And you can say the same with investing. If you've got a vacancy, and you're like rushing the wrong tenant in, like you're better off recruiting well. Like, or if you need a property manager today. Like and you don't vet people. Oh, like, how many times have you seen someone use a substandard broker? Oh, all the time, dude. All the time. All the time. Man, well, it's like just because I just go and use this person, Charlie. Why? What? I've just used them forever. They're just sure. Are they the best ones for me? Mm-hmm. No idea. Just go and use that one. I I love that that capacity issue because it just forces rushed decisions. Um, 
you go back to that point of like, well, if I just went and asked someone, I'm like, hey, what team member do you have available or something like that? You reckon they're going to give me their A player? <laughs> it's like, do you reckon they're going to be like, yeah, sure, yeah. I, I will say I think thin margins and um, profitability in general are probably one of the things that comes into this because if you've got a very thin margin business and you're going to hire someone, you're likely going to go unprofitable on that role for a while and it puts strain on the organisation. So I, I think there's like layers and layers to where this one pops its head up. But it's like, again, if you go through this, it's just like the cost of re-recruitment, the uh, opportunity lost in not having it, hiring a B player versus having an A. It is. I can see why many people say that re-recruitment is the most expensive thing in business. And painful. And the thing that they run away from. Like I almost think that people treat this as a tick in the box. And if you, so just, have you not considered being a share trader with no team? <laughs> Which is like, what is it? Business would be so much happier or better if you didn't have clients and team. Like, I'm like, yeah, sure, it will. Yeah, so share trading. That's, I think that's the share only trading. one that you could do. Um, there might be some others out there, but I, I once considered, I'm like, I thought having a big team was the problem. Just turned out I was terrible at recruiting and maybe, maybe doing I was well the problem. and managing it. So, so what the a, epiphany you have over and over. Yeah, this is all, what, it's always me? Uh, that's... That's great. We'll lie down on our couch and just keep saying that. What about what about training? Do you reckon like that having an under-trained team could be a profit killer? What are your thoughts? Yes. So let's go. <laughs> what what do you think about like having a team that you bring in and not training them or getting them to do things that they're not trained in or that they have no idea about? But they're blindsided. They know enough to be dangerous, Charlie. How many team members have actually come out to you that were content writers and they're like, Charlie, I actually don't know the fundamental frameworks around writing content because they were content writers. And you see they're going, wait a minute, this is not what I expected. <laughs> and where's, what's the conduit gap? The conduit gap, the training, right, which means now you've got a whole heap of people doing a whole heap of different deliverables which are seemingly the same. In different ways. And so I see this as such a profit killer because, well, imagine the rework. And I'm actually, for us, Charlie, back, back, back in the day when we were doing SEO, the rework was actually the killer. We were having documents that had version fives sitting on them. Now, if I had have had a team that just executed right on version one, <laughs> and so someone just reviewed version one and that went out instead of a rewriting of a rewriting of a rewriting of a rewriting, uh, profitability would have gone up because guess what? We could have had five documents for the same time and effort it would have taken to do one <laughs> because of just improperly trained team. But then it became common to the extent that I'm like, hey, where's the fifth version of this thing? Like there's only three versions of it. I thought we did five versions. Whereas like now I'm just utilizing, or now I'm just looking at a team's inefficiency or inability to deliver first time every time as the norm. This is, a really, this is a really interesting one. Um, I'll, I'll share some things that are, are more observations. I'm fascinated by business owners that would spend um, $50,000 plus on their own education and then none on their team. It's like if you value this so highly for yourself, how can you not see this as great for your team? So really important one. I know many business owners though that I think are fantastic. They're continually trying to buy things for their team, offer them skill development, do training days, all kinds of things. And I think that's awesome because I believe that every person wants to progress in life and get better at what they do. 
I think it's got to be embedded in the culture for organizations to do it well, though. If you're the type of person that's like throwing courses at people or books or whatever it is, the likelihood of getting follow through is actually quite low. Yep. So, uh, for example, we again, uh, we're finding ways to bring up TikTok ads. <laughs> if you could, like when we do a call with our team and we're reviewing it together and going through how to do things together, I think that's a form of good training in itself. Like those types of things where if you can bring groups together and do group training, I think are really powerful. The knowledge um, transfers. Yeah. So I'll even go further. If your business is online or in anything that's got a high amount of change, I think this is even more important to you. Mm. If you're in a, uh, a more stagnant industry where nothing moves, it may be less important in some ways. But even then, it's like, in what industry is innovation not coming for? What is it, like 80% of the businesses that exist today won't exist in 15 to 20 years? Like, uh, why? Innovation. Things change. The world changes. Just people keeping on top of the, yeah, keeping on top of new technology, keeping on top of new frameworks, just challenging themselves to say, okay, is this going to be different? No? Okay, great. Let's keep this and keep learning what's coming in. Let's do the next one. What have we got on the list here? I'm going to let you kick off on this one. So it's keeping the team when the business has changed. Now, we've actually had conversations with a couple of people in like the last two weeks about this exact point. Walk us through it. Do you know what? You actually taught me about this. Do you know, we went out for, we've had many moments in our lives, Graham, where you've actually made my head hurt. And this was, we went out for dinner uh, in Brighton and you were talking about the idea in one of your companies about like, you had a CEO in place to get it to 1 million or it might have been 3 million. I can't yep. remember the exact number. And then your plan was to fire him and get the guy, another guy who's a specialist at getting companies from 3 million to 10 million. Completely. Right. And I, I remember listening to that. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me this guy's going to work his ring out, get this company from nothing to a million. Then you're going to go, see ya, fired, and get a guy to go from 1 million to 5 million. And you're yes. like, yeah. I'm like, that actually makes a lot of sense. So if you've got an organization where someone was great when you were a startup, maybe they were a jack of all trades and they could do all these things, really helpful. Like I actually remember in my own agency, I had a guy that could do graphics and kind of put it on a landing page and like good enough. But later on when we needed that specialist talent, he kind of sucked. Because he wasn't that good a graphic designer or that good at um, development work where he became kind of, I don't want to say useless, that's a horrible thing to say about someone, but definitely his skill set wasn't suited to how the organisation had changed. Yeah. So that, countless examples. It, it is, it's a challenge one, especially when like as business owners, like I love everybody that I work with or otherwise I wouldn't work with them, right? I don't want to walk into uh, work and just not Should we like be concerned if our team listens to this podcast? They're like, oh, crap. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, I, I like them to be Like they've all got completely different personalities. The, the difference though to what you're saying and to articulate it even more, right? As we innovate our businesses and our businesses change, uh, as we were talking about, innovation has to stay Imagine that we're doing podcasting now, right? And we're helping people out with podcasts. Imagine that, I don't know, uh, like Riverside, which is what we use to record, does like automatically captures these snippets for us. Just imagine. And it's like, well, now that skill set's not required. So imagine that we just had a dedicated person that was a snippet picker, right? And that was all they did was just pick snippets. 
and we now no longer need to pick these little bits of a podcast. Well, is it valid? Yes, I like the person. Yes, I think that they do great work, but I don't need them anymore. But what a lot of people do is they'll hold on to them because they're great people and they'll just say, okay, well, we'll try and get you to do something that you're not an expert at that you probably don't even want to do. I just want to keep you around because I want to stay loyal to you and all those kind of things, which is actually doing them a disservice because it's not what they want to do, but it's actually doing the business a disservice because now they've taken this nine out of 10 A player and put them in a position where they can only ever be a five out of a 10 because they've never had the training. They've never had the skill set. They didn't actually want it, but they're just like, sure, I'll do it because I like you as well. And you've asked me to do it. And so that's exactly what happens with in your example with CEOs is it's the same thing. It's like the skill set, the team size, and the team structure that you use to get a business from nothing to a couple of million revenue is fundamentally different to a team and an organizational uh, CEO capabilities of taking an organization from 5 mil to 15 million revenue because it's a different team structure, different contract structures, different, like every single thing fundamentally. How how they collaborate is the big one, the really, really big one. Like can you imagine like how Microsoft collaborates versus like a small IT company? Totally. You couldn't take, yeah, you couldn't take one CEO and put them in another and they'd be completely successful. And the, yeah, I'm on my soapbox now, Charlie. Like yeah, business, jump the jump big, off. <laughs> <laughs> the biggest challenge that business owners have in general is their glass ceiling. And we always talk about how business owners get to a point and the limiting point in their business is actually them and their skill set because they need to relearn a new skill in order to get their business to another stage. And that is the same when you're going and recruiting a CEO because they're, they're not a business owner and they're not a founder of a company that they're like, if I don't change, the business won't grow, which means I'm not going to get the outcome I'm looking for. They're a career CEO. And like, well, this is what I do, <laughs> right? They're not working Saturdays and Sundays and midnight burning the candle trying to figure all these things out. It's like, well, this is your skill set. This is what you're going to do. So the best way is I can't really upskill you to get better at this. I may as well go and recruit someone for, that's better at that. And so that's can, the whole concept. Can I give you a, an example I think many business owners will relate to? All right, give it to me. All right, your first year in business, do you know what you need from your accountant and bookkeeper? Hells no. Compliance. You literally <laughs> need compliance. That's it. I was going to go that second. It was like first, someone said I need an accountant bookkeeper. Sure. Second one is like, what do they do? Compliance. I hear it. Yeah. Is that at all how we utilize our accountant and bookkeeper today? <laughs> Hells no. <laughs> yeah, so just think about that. It's like most of the conversations I have with uh, my accountant or our accountant today, we use the same guy, shout out to Anthony, he's good fun, Woo. Um, are actually like, hey, um, business is doing this. I want to know how I can turn it into borrowing power for my property stuff. It's like, yes. So it's not actually like accounting questions. It's more like, uh, well, it is. It's very much accounting questions, but it's not about tax in the same way. It's like a very, very different conversation. So as I my organization has changed, so have the needs that come from that. So it's and what's really, really important to point out here is that if you have the right if you change from this compliance account and bookkeeper in this example to someone who's equipped to doing that, they're not learning. They're applying the skills they know how to do direct like they've got the playbook to come and apply to you today so you get to go fast. Yep. You're not trying to teach your compliance accountant, all right, I'm thinking about doing this property thing. Can you please go learn about how to uh, shift your views into making sure I've got borrowing power? <laughs> like madness. Or same with brokers, right? When you're getting your first mortgage broker. So my, my first mortgage broker was actually just like an ANZ rep and they got us our PPR. 
there's no way he could construct a big property portfolio because yeah. he just doesn't have that skill set. That's not what he's equipped for. He wants to help first home buyers get into his home. So yeah. when the need changes, you've got to be absolutely open to changing uh, the team that comes with that. And is is the way that I think about relationships, they are right for someone else on some other journey. And it's not, you're not a bad person. They were great for the journey that they came on and you, they had a purpose based on your journey. It's not a bad thing. <laughs> like it's just that you don't need to keep the same team. So I love the fact that we're talking about like the team in the business, the wealth creation team, because it's so critical that as you team evolve, grant. it's all business. Everything's a team. Everything's a team. Reckon we wrap this one up? Yeah, I'm getting tired. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm not. I just... <laughs> All right, let's wrap this one up, though. It's uh, a nice the- long episode for us. I feel like we should just, like, cut it. It's like, now I'm feeling tired. It's like, just finish the episode. But we won't. I just want to say thank you for everybody who's tuning in. Uh, again, head over to fullstackbusinessowner.com forward slash newsletter if you want to hear more of our crazy rants. Uh, and I just want to say thank you again. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode of Full Stack Business Owner.